sung that song, I thought about, I thought about the situation of the world. Obviously, all of us, our attention has been drawn uh, to the east and where uh, the Ukraine is and Russia's blatant assault on that nation. And, uh, you know, it's always unsettling when you see things like this on the news and you get back to what is most important. What do we have? It is the Lord Jesus alone that is stable. We think of the world as being so stable around us. We as Americans are so spoiled with, with our borders and our economic stability and our societal and political system. We're not used to seeing that kind of upheaval that we see in elsewhere. But when we see it over there, we're reminded that how tenuous it is even in our own nation and how we could be thrown into war uh, as well. Uh, but Jesus Christ is stable. He is the one unchanging uh, reality in the world today, and I'm thankful for that. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to Matthew chapter number 11. I mean, excuse me, Matthew chapter number 21, not 11, Matthew chapter number 21. And as you're turning, I want to preface the message this morning just with a few a few comments. The Gospel of Mark contains a fascinating quote from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Listen to what our Lord said. Matthew 10 and verse 45. Jesus said this, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus' summary of his own life was not only his brief years of ministry, his service to others, not to be served but to serve himself, but ultimately ends with his death. Jesus' summary of his life ends with the, the finality of his death and the impact of it. One cannot help but see this very truth when reading the rest of the New Testament. One of the most important events in all of history is the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Christ, the importance of that is evident when you consider that over a quarter of the gospel accounts are focused not on the 30 years of Jesus' life, not even the three and a half years of His active ministry, but on one week of His life. One week of the life of Jesus, it contains, it is taken up with almost a quarter of all the gospel accounts that we have. This one week of Jesus' life is known as His Passion Week. Passion Week. Now, now the word passion in our modern minds, it brings the image to bear of love. When you talk about a passionate person or a or passionate couple, you think of the word passion as romantic love or, 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 or very ardent love or we might even think of an eccentric enthusiasm. We might say, oh, he's very passionate about racing or he's real passionate about his, 
his hunting. They're passionate. They're, they're overly enthusiastic. But the reality is the Greek word uh, from which we derive the word passion, it means literally to suffer. To call the final week of our Lord's earthly sojourn a passion week, a week of suffering, is not extra biblical. This is not something in, in a word I'm applying that is outside of Holy Writ. Listen to Acts chapter 1 and verse number 3. It says, To whom also he, Jesus, showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. There's that word passion. And so uh, to think of it as extravagant love is not necessarily uh, correct. It is the week of his suffering. We see this by the same word being translated in different ways in other passages of Scripture. You take the same word in Hebrews 13, 12. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. That word suffered there is the same word in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, translated passion. Also, Look in 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That word suffered there, I emphasize, same word, translated passion, in Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 3. And so when we think about Jesus' Passion Week, we don't think of it as a week of his great love, but we think of it as a week of of his suffering the week of Jesus suffering I want us for the next several weeks leading up to our celebration of the resurrection of Jesus on Easter to look closely at the final days of our Lord's life and draw life-giving truth from these days leading up to his death and resurrection so from now until Easter we're going to be preoccupied with the last week of Jesus' life. Now, now, I want to let you know right up front, not every day in that week is given to us explicitly in the Scripture. Some days are silent. We'll find that as we go through the week. Some days there is, there's nothing to be said. and We don't know. The, the, the Scripture has veiled over those days. But there are instances during that week in which we can gain life feeding, so, so nourishing truth that will tell us of Jesus' gospel, of the truth of His death, the meaning of His life, the saving grace of our Lord Jesus. So Passion Week begins with Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem and that's where I told you to turn to. So I want you to go to Matthew chapter number 21 and we'll look, start reading in verse number 1. We'll read down through verse number 11. And, and I want us to focus our thoughts today on a day of declaration. A day of declaration. When Jesus started this week, this would be uh, uh, the Sunday. This would be the first day of the week. Jesus entering into that week. And we would know this, uh, it's also called Palm Sunday. You've ever heard that? Uh, the, the, the Sunday before Easter 
is called Palm Sunday. Well, that's what we're looking at today. We're several weeks removed from that. But I want us to look at this day, Palm Sunday, and call it a day of declaration. Matthew 21, and look at verse number 1. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethpage unto the Mount of Olives, then, then sent Jesus to disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. If any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All, make sure, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye daughters of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes, and they set him, Jesus, thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before uh, that, that and, and that followed cried saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Again, a day of declaration. This saying declares certain things not only in their time and when Jesus made this entry some 2,000 years ago, but it declares some things to us today. Things that we need to desperately hold on to in our hour in which we live. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. God, we count on this morning not the words in which I will share, not the comments that I will make on these scriptures. We are dependent upon the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God. We pray your Spirit would come. You would guide our hearts as we watch Jesus enter this city and see the significance of this event and how it resonates to our very lives today, to the decisions that we will make tomorrow and the subsequent week ahead of us. Father, I pray that Jesus most of all would be glorified, that we would see Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And may we bow down May we relinquish our life to Him in this hour. God, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. In September of 61 B.C., the most significant triumphal entry ever witnessed in Rome was given to the Roman uh, conqueror Pompey. For two days, the grand procession of trophies from every subdued land and long lines of chained captives moved through the city along the Via Sacra, the main street leading to the heart of the eternal city of Rome. 
brazen tablets were carried in as well. And on each were engraved the names of vanquished nations, including 1,000 castles and 900 cities. Such an extravagant and elaborate celebration was an explicit declaration that Pompeii had indeed conquered the world. Almost a hundred years later, another triumphal procession took place just outside the walls of the city of David. A carpenter turned prophet rode into Jerusalem, not in a chariot pulled by white stallions, but on a lowly donkey. At his side were not thousands of captives and loads of treasures, but only a handful of followers who had believed his words and witnessed his miraculous deeds. The powerful and the wealthy did not stand along the path to cheer the arrival of this Nazarene. If it was not for the common folk that lay their coats along the way and shouted to the tops of their lungs, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, one might have even missed the most significant declaration of God's sovereign rule over mankind. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on this donkey, it was a divine affirmation that He was the one true world conqueror. <laughs> Think of it. A lowly carpenter turned prophet sitting on a borrowed donkey walking in, riding into the holy city announce the declaration of him being the greatest conqueror of the world. And to, to be honest, if we were to tell, we were to go out into the public and talk about the name Pompeii, I dare say a number of them might say, I remember it being spoken in high school, but that's about it. You mention the name of Jesus and you will, you will drive the, the length and breadth of our country and you will see church after church after place where Jesus' name is being declared, where His ethic is being taught, where His life and death and resurrection are being celebrated to this very hour. Jesus is the world conqueror, the greatest sovereign, the greatest Lord that has ever been, uh, been designated. There are many today uh, that will suggest and believe that even proclaim that Christ possesses no throne of regal rule. That the Jesus of Nazareth account is nothing more than a fanciful legend or, or the exaggerated tale of a social or religious reformer. But the, but the Word of God is clear when it proclaims that the living Christ is still Lord of all. That He has not resigned in any way His throne. No, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. As He did so, it was a divine affirmation that He was the one true conqueror of all. This seemingly insignificant possession uh, into Jerusalem was led by the Prince of Peace, the King of the Ages, the Lord of Heaven, the Messiah of God, and the one and only true promised Son of David. Nowhere in the life of the earthly life of the Lord Jesus is His declaration of Lordship 
of His Messiahship made more glaringly apparent than in His triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which marks the beginning of the week of His Passion. As we look at this first day of Jesus' Passion Week, each one of us must look upon this scene and determine if Christ indeed holds this place of royalty in our hearts and lives. You see, we can't look at this scene and just say this is a history subject. This is something that we study factually and we know some of the history that went on. But because Jesus is Lord, because He is a resurrected Savior sitting upon high, because He is coming again one day, this scene has impact on us. It resonates to our very hour. And so I believe we can see this by recognizing three descriptions from this scene, this day of declaration. The first, the first description I want you to see of this scene is the significance of His action. Now, to the outward eye, riding a donkey into Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago might not be too noteworthy. Hundreds, if not thousands, had done the same in time and antiquity. What makes this donkey ride of Jesus into Jerusalem so important? Now, I mean, Jesus had gone into Jerusalem a number of times before. All of his life, at least when he was a young boy through his life, he always made journey to Jerusalem. That was required by the law. Jesus was under the subject of the law. He would have made his way into Jerusalem many times before. And so what makes this day so significant? And I believe that we can see that in the description of his entry. Notice Matthew tells us actually why this is so significant in verses 4 and 5. You see, the, uh, Matthew, our author here, he, he breaks from the words of Jesus and he goes in verse number 4 and gives us a commentary of what's taking place. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughters of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. So here we see that all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by a prophet. Matthew's going out of his way to tell us that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. It was the fulfillment of a prophecy made by Zechariah concerning the Messiah nearly 500 years before. Now, you know this is not the first time that Jesus had fulfilled prophecy. We just celebrated Christmas a couple of months ago and Christmas is rife, we even talked about it, rife with fulfillment of prophecy. You know, a lot of the naysayers of Jesus say, well, you know, Jesus kind of steered his life, particularly maybe even this scene, Jesus steered his life in such a way that he might be seen as the fulfillment of of prophecy. Well, listen, that didn't happen at his birth. I mean, you don't pick the place you're going to be born. No, Jesus is, we see in his life, fulfillment of prophecy after prophecy. Matter of fact, there are over 400 identifying 
characteristics of prophecy concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament that apply to Jesus. I find it interesting. Years ago, I came across mathematician Peter Stoner who summarized the probability of just eight, not 400, just eight prophecies concerning the Messiah to be true of one man. So here's the odds of just eight being true of one man. It is one in ten to the 17th power. Now, let's not get all mathematical. That, that's ten with a one and 17 zeros behind it, okay? Now, to get a picture of how much that's like, take the entire state of Texas and in the entire state of Texas, fill it two foot deep with big silver dollars, right? You know those big ones with JFK on, I think. That, big silver dollars, two foot deep over the entire state of Texas. Take one silver dollar, put an X on it, and fly in a helicopter somewhere out in the middle of Texas and chunk that into that whole vat, that whole Texas covered with with, with silver dollars. The odds of eight, proph eight, eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person are the chances that you would walk across the state of Texas, reach down, and pick up that one coin with an X on it. If it was happenstance, if it was just statistics, that is the odds. But you know what the odds are with God? 100% Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophecies. The description given in verse number 5 says that he would come lowly riding upon a donkey. The life of Jesus is characterized as with such lowliness of heart. He was born not in a palace with a nation's best attendants to care for him, but in a stable among lowly animals, laid in a feed trough as a cradle. He grew up, he did not grow up under the instruction of royal tutors, walking the halls of a palace, but grew up in poverty in Nazareth, in a lowly carpenter shop. His inheritance was not royal estates with rich vineyards as far as the eye could see. No, no, he was a man who was a homeless sojourner. And by his own account, he had no place that he owned to rest his head. He did not occupy a throne of inherited rule, commanding mighty armies before him. No, he had a band of 12, 12 arguing followers, one of which would betray him. No, this king did not arrive in the boldness of a warrior's stallion. No, he would come lowly on a donkey. And yet, here he comes. The unlikeliest of kings. I tell you, this fits Jesus. This fits who he is. One of the reasons that he came on a donkey, I believe, is because of the psalm. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of our God. Jesus doesn't come in the strength of mighty armies and, and great stallions. No, he comes lowly with divine authority. Authority from heaven. The description of his entry, it designates to us who he is. Also, notice not only the description of his entry, but the designation of his entry. 
Yet the prophet says, look, behold, this may look out of place. This may seem out of the ordinary, but this is your king, Israel. But he's more than a king. The indication from Zechariah's prophecy is that this is more than a king. This is a Messiah. This is your promised one. The salvation of God. You know, the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah goes all the way back to the early first gospel in which God told Mary that of your seed shall be born one that will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. There's always been that prophecy of one to come as a deliverer. And we can trace that red line of redemption all the way from Genesis through Exodus and all the Old Testament and find it being fulfilled here as Jesus coming as Messiah and King. Jesus is King. He's King still today. He's not abdicated His throne. The Bible says He's the King of the Jews. He's the King of Israel. He's the King of righteousness, the King of the ages, the King of heaven. He is the King of glory. He's the King of the saints. He's the King of kings. And He's the Lord of all lords. One of my favorite preachers is a man by the name of S.M. Lockridge. And he puts it this way. You might have heard this before, but it bears repeating. He's my King. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially, impartially merciful. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the wellspring of wisdom, the doorway of deliverance, the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He's my King. Is He your King today? What a King He is. No wonder the prophet told the daughters of Zion to shout, O daughter. Shout, O Jerusalem. Behold, thy King cometh unto thee. I remember when that king made his way into my life. I didn't know him from Adam, but buddy, he came in and took over my life and changed my life. The king rides in and extends his royalty over where he enters. The significance of his action. Notice secondly, the supremacy of his authority. The prophetic fulfillment of this moment's description was not the only indication that this is more than a man riding a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. There's more going on here than just a succession of the earthly throne of David. There's more going on here. You see, the, the crowd around him when they're saying Hosanna and a king is coming, they're not thinking king of kings and lord of lords. They're thinking someone that will overthrow the yoke of bondage in Rome. But there's more going on. It goes well beyond that. The prophetic of this fulfillment of this moment is more than just an earthly king coming 
into prominence. No, even the orchestration of this moment had the authorship of the divine. Jesus begins this scene by commanding his disciples and in that command we see the supreme authority of our king. Listen to the extent of his understanding. You know the story how that when Jesus, when this chapter opens up, Jesus sent two of his disciples into the village to go acquire this donkey. So he sends these disciples on an errand to borrow or acquire this donkey that will prove to be the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus didn't own an animal. Jesus didn't own hardly anything, maybe the clothes on his back, and that's all that he had. So he didn't own a donkey to fulfill this prophecy. So so he sent his disciples to go and acquire one. And when he does so, Jesus sends them with some strange instructions. They're to retrieve the animal from a specific place and if asked to give uh, and if asked to give a particular response. This is in and of itself a miracle. A miracle of the omniscience of Christ. He knew where the colt was. He he knew exactly where they had it tied. He knew what the disciples would be asked. And he knew the answer that would satisfy the owner of 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 the colt. Jesus is not only king, he's God. These are the divine attributes. This is more than just an earthly throne being, being asserted as the line and lineage of the great King David. No, no, no. This is God entering the holy city. God because of His complete understanding of all things. Jesus knows everything taking place in that city. He knew where every camel, every camel, every donkey, every chicken every whatever in that city. He knew exactly where it was. He has the omniscient mind of God. But not only did He have it then, He has it now. Jesus is omniscient. I like how Revelation 2.23 puts it, He is the one which searcheth the reins and the heart. The reins, the innermost part of us. And the heart of us. Jesus knows you through and through. He knows your mind more than you know yourself. He sees directly into us. A.W. Tozer had an excellent description of the understanding of God. And by, by by the Trinitarian view of God, this is the understanding of Jesus as well. Listen to this. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters. All mind and every mind. All spirit and all spirits. All being and every being. All creaturehood and all creatures. Every plurality and all pluralities. All law and every law. All relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires. Every unuttered secret. All thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, upon uh, in, in earth, in motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. God knows it all. And we think that we can hide our sin from Him. 
How sad. How sad that we can carry on our rebellion to God thinking that He won't notice when He knows instantly, effortlessly, all things. In these words that He gave His disciples which came to pass, Jesus is asserting His divinity as King. He's not just a king. He's not just surrounded by those that would want to make Him king. He is king by divine omniscience, by divine authority. Notice also, we see the exercise of His Lordship. Luke's account of this very scene is told in Luke 19, 35 Listen to what it says. And they that were sent went their way and found even as He had said unto them. And as they were loosening the colt, the owners thereof said unto him, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. So Luke's kind of, he's kind of filling in the empty spot that Matthew didn't tell us. He tells us what took place in the city. And we find that Jesus' declaration to his disciples exactly satisfied this man from which they were taking this donkey. You see, here is an exercise of the lordship of the king. Jesus requested the colt to be given to him. This is a command of a king. And upon taking the colt and responding to the question, the owner is submitting to the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ. The parallel accounts of both Mark and Luke say that the colt had never been ridden. Now, I'm no cowboy. My son is more of a cowboy than I am. He worked, he worked with cows for a while. Uh, I'm not a cowboy, but I do know this. That if you get on the back of a horse that has never been ridden, you're in for a ride of your life. I'm pretty sure that the same thing would extend to donkeys as well. This is a donkey, by, that, by virtue of that description, this is a donkey that is unbroken. That would not understand why something would be put upon its back. But we see here, in this donkey that had never been ridden, we find no bucking of Jesus, no kicking, no stomping. Here at the church, I remember when we had... COVID hit and, and I had to come down here and record a message by myself and ain't nothing creepier being in a church by yourself at night and, and I come here, I hadn't been here all that long and I locked that front door you know and uh, preached my little message, videoed it <laughs> did everything I needed to do turned the lights off, went out that door and was trying to, remember it was that old lock, it was hard to lock it was hard to lock back and I'm sitting there fidgeting with it and all of a sudden there was a scream and I don't know if it was down here or where over there and it, it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. It was that donk. Somebody got a donkey around here. They go, ah, ah. And he just, at me, I about jumped that high when I first heard it. I ain't heard something like that in a long time. But it's that donkey not liking what's going on. And, and he's letting everybody know it. This donkey that had never been ridden was submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There are valuable lessons in this donkey. Matter of fact, I remember Terry, Terry, you remember Terry Trivett years ago, he used to preach a message. I love to hear it every time he'd preach it. 
It was called, Jesus, I'm willing to be your donkey. And the truth of the matter is, there's a lot of things that we ought to look like a donkey. Because this donkey here, this donkey yielded himself to Christ. This, this donkey was given completely to his ownership. This donkey humbled himself to put Jesus on his back. He didn't buck him. He didn't try to knock him down. But he let Jesus ride upon his back. And do you know what happened? Because this donkey was allowing Jesus to ride upon his back, all the people that crowded around didn't see the donkey. They saw Jesus. Now that's a free sermon. It wasn't even in my notes. You can have it right there. They saw the donkey. And so our job as a donkey is to lift up Jesus. It's not that people could see me, but that people could see Jesus. Jesus was about to be glorified before this people, revealing who He was. God sent Messiah, rightful heir to the throne of God. And yet it was essential that this donkey submits to the Lordship of Jesus for this to take place. That is what happens when we yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We become like this unnamed certain man who owned this donkey. Lord, if you want what I got, here it is. Lord, if I have something you want, I hold it loosely. It's yours. Lord, if you want to ride me, you know, we all have a jack nature about us. You know, that's what they, that's what they call, a, 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 I think, a donkey that's not been broken, a jack. And they want to buck, and they want to pull, and they don't. We all have a jack in our nature. We want to pull against Jesus sometimes. We want to buck against him. We want to chafe under him. But the example of this donkey is to yield to him, is to yield to his lordship. I ask you, are you submitted to the lordship of Jesus so that whatever he asks for, you're willing to give it? Are you yielded to the Lordship of Jesus so that He can lead you and direct you by the bit in His mouth, by the commands of His Word, wherever He would have you to go? Are you yielded to Jesus like this donkey? My preacher talked about taking a blank sheet of paper and signing your name to the bottom of it and saying, Lord, fill it up with everything you want on my life. That's yielded to the Lordship of Jesus. God, whatever you want, I'll sign it in advance. You fill it up with whatever you want. Oh, that's the kind of Lordship that must be exemplified in our life for people to see Jesus, for Him to be exalted and seen for who He truly is. Last of all, the shouts of His acclaim. The shouts of His acclaim. In his commentary on Matthew, Arno Geblian said of this moment, he described it as reaching the beginning of the end. And there is something about this Palm Sunday, this day of declaration of his divine appointment as king and also as Messiah. It's the beginning of the end. Ivor Powell, one of my favorite preachers, known as the man from Wales, he said that Jesus was commencing the final and most important phase of His life. You know, this scene on the descent from the Mount of Olives where the holy city would be in view, 
was filled with people shouting the praises of the king. And in these shouts and the reaction to these greeters, we see also the kingship of Jesus. Look in verse number 7. We find their refrain. And they brought the ass and the colt and they put their clothes on uh, uh, their clothes and they set him Jesus their own and the great multitude spread their garments in the way others cut down branches from trees and strawed them in the way the significance of this moment cannot be overlooked for the first time Jesus blatantly and publicly announced himself to be Messiah ever wondered about that? That Jesus, all through his life, he said some strange things about people knowing who he was. There are many occasions in the gospel where Jesus tried to conceal his true identity. After performing miracles, he would say things like this, Luke 5, 14, tell no man. Luke 12, 16, he charged them that they should not make him known. Mark 1, See thou say nothing to any man. Those strike us is odd because we want to make Jesus known to all people. But Jesus knew something. Uh, he was conscious of the Lord's timing in His ministry. Always aware that His time had not yet come. But in Matthew chapter number 21, all that had come to an end. It was time. Sitting astride this donkey, he was boldly and purposefully affirming himself to be king. This wasn't an accident. Jesus, as he had done so many times before, could have simply walked into Jerusalem. No, there was intentionality behind the donkey and going into the city under the praise of his followers. Notice this was a joyful presentation in 8. Talked about how the great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from trees and strawed them in the way. Jesus was not only declaring himself to be king, he was being received as such by those that gathered to greet him. This was taking the place, this was all taking uh, during the time of the Passover. The law of God, like I said earlier, the law of God required everyone to journey to Jerusalem to make sacrifice at the temple at the time of Passover. And so at this time, the population of Jerusalem would have swelled to nearly 2 to 3 million people. Jerusalem was teeming with population. Therefore, this roadside greeting would have at least been thousands of people that had shown up to greet Jesus as he came in to celebrate the Passover. Verse 8 says that they spread their garments before him in the path of his riding. Now, this spreading of garments may seem kind of odd to us. Uh, It's seen in most cultures uh, that the pathway of those who are counted of great importance and worthiness was to be Beautifully decorated, okay? That's custom in Oriental times. But we still do it today. We call it roll out the red carpet. Have you ever heard that phrase? Roll out the red carpet. 
Uh, that's what this means. It means we have somebody important to come in. And so we, we soften their way with red carpet, significant, beautifully decorated scenes. It was the oriental custom of that day to place carpets or rugs before a king to walk on or to ride over. And they, they, these people here, they didn't have rugs at this sudden moment. They didn't bring rugs from the house on their Passover. So they took their cloaks, these outer garments, and they throwed them down in front of the donkey as it made its way with Jesus down the main entry into Jerusalem. They, they did their best to show that this man is royalty. That he is someone of significance. They, they recognized him that he is King Jesus as he rode by. And the tense of the wording suggests that they did this over and over again. I imagine that they would lay a garment down and as Jesus passed, they would take the garment and run down and lay it down because the wording suggests they did it again and again and again. All the while, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. They also strewed branches in the road. The Gospel of John tells us that they were palm branches. That's why they call it Palm Sunday. These palm branches have often been as emblems of joy and victory. Now here it is. This is their conquering king. They see Jesus as the conqueror of Pilate. As the overthrower of Herod. He's going to bring righteous rule. According to the Old Testament prophecies, this king will come and bring God's righteous rule over the world, over the nations. And so when they see Jesus come in, this is a symbol of joy, of victory, of triumph. And they lay these down before Jesus. You see, these have seen Jesus for who He is. And they surrender their belongings to identify who Jesus is. They're expressing their joy in His presence. It was a joyful presentation. When we come to church, I was thinking about this as we drove up the mountain this morning and made our way to this place. We do no less when we come here. We yield, we yield our giving to Him. We yield our lives to Him, our time to Him. We come and celebrate Hosanna, the God of our salvation. That's what we sung about this morning, that God saves. I know many of you, you were saved a long time ago. Many years ago. I myself, more than, I think 25 years ago since I, since I became a Christian, since I, I was born again, long time ago. But every week, when we come in here to worship God, we come in with hearts that says the King has come. We have every reason to celebrate His victory over our sin. His victory and control over our lives. That's what this church is about. That's why when we gather together, this is, this is not a funeral. This is a celebration of what God has done in our hearts and lives. A purposeful affirmation, a joyful presentation, a royal identification. Look at verse 9. And the multitudes that went before him and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Notice these 
phrases here. The, the shouts immediately drew attention of everybody in Jerusalem. What's going on? That's why the latter, the latter verses 10 and 11, it draws everybody's attention. Everybody that wasn't in the know, that did not know who this man is, their attention was drawn. What's going on? Who is this person? And then they tell them this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. But it draws their attention. Why? Because of the wording they're using. Very important wording. Wording, for example, the word Hosanna. It's a word that means save and save now. Save and save now. The shouts would ran across the whole valley. Save and save now. The salvation of God had arrived. Now although their view of the Savior, like I've reiterated time and again, their view of the Savior was to relinquish the Roman shackles from their, their, their hands and neck. It was more than that. It is no less true that He came to save them, not from Rome, but from sin. Satan himself. He came to save them from oppression, but to save, He did not come necessarily to save them from oppression, but He came to save them from damnation, from the judgment of God. The title, Son of David, has not only kingly connotations connecting Him to the throne of Israel, but messianic in meaning. The Messiah would come through the lineage of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Or, or it could be rendered, blessed is the Messiah that comes in the authority and commission of the Lord. Blessed is the one that comes according to the promise of the Lord. The phrase, Hosanna in the highest, it simply means... Hosanna in the highest, most lofty strains. As loud as you can get. Oh, you know, I, was, I got into a little tussle a while back with uh, someone on social media about preaching and teaching and basically called it ungodly to raise your voice. You know, you just need to be in a conversational tone. Of course, I take issue with that. But, but here we find... Them declaring loud voices, shouting it out loud, Hosanna in the highest strain, in the highest key where everybody can hear. Save now, O thou supremely great and glorious God. Save by the Messiah that comes in thy name. These were far more than any ordinary pilgrim welcome of any ordinary pilgrim welcome extended to Jesus, this was a verbal identification that Jesus is King. He's King. He is the Savior and the Lord. We need to identify Him as the same. When I was a kid in the 70s, you know, we would listen to uh, tapes of old Jack Hiles, you know, and Jack Hiles would... Talk about one of these days the communists are going to come in and they're going to line up all the Christians on the wall and they're going to ask you if you believe in Jesus and if you say you do, they're going to mow you down. You know, and that scared me as a kid. You know, the older I, the older I got, you know, the, the more I kind of 
kind of laugh that off, but the reality is, according to prophecy, according to the book of Revelation, there is going to come a time when we will have to declare our allegiance one way or the other. And, the, and no doubt it happens now. It happens to you and me at the workplace when we're cornered in conversations and people kind of feeling and probing out who we are. There'll be those moments where we make a decision. Am I going to stand for Jesus? Am I not going to stand for Him? Am I going to be known as one of them or not be known as a believer? We need to make sure that we readily identify Jesus is King. I'm His servant. I'm His follower. I'm the sheep of His pasture. He is my heavenly shepherd. Where He leads, I follow. So we draw from this scene. A lot of lessons. To close, Reverend E.P. Scott was a missionary living in India in the 1800s. At the prompting of the Holy Spirit and against the advice of his fellow missionaries, Scott set out alone to visit a remote village. He was determined to share the gospel with this very dangerous and savage tribe. Several days into his journey, as he walked along the path and neared the village, he was suddenly surrounded by a large group of warriors who, who were, had their spears at the ready, ready to run him through as he walked down that trail. Expecting to die, he decided that he would die while glorifying his God. And also to hopefully maybe stir something in their hearts, he decided to take his violin, which he carried his violin with him all the time. He unlocked it, untook, take out his violin, he placed it under his chin, he drew the bow and began to sing a hymn in their language so that they could understand. Here's the hymn. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. He closed his eyes as he sang and played, knowing that any moment, with every verse, he could feel the, 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 the sharp tips of their spears run him through as he would give his life for the Lord Jesus. He did the first verse. He did the second verse. He did the third verse. As he began to sing the fourth verse, he opened his eye to find around him all the spears had been lowered and tears in every eye of the natives standing around him. May our hearts do the same. When we are confronted with the Lordship of Jesus Christ, His kingly rule over our hearts and lives, may we yield and do the same. Thank God He has opened our eyes to see who Jesus is. If you're here today and have never received Him as Lord and Savior, may God open your eyes. May, may the Holy Spirit pull back the blinders and let you see just who Jesus is. Like these travelers, like these ones who identify Him, He is Messiah. He is King. No matter what anybody says, he is King. He is Lord. May we do the same in our hearts and lives. Let's stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and you have never received 
Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I beg you, right there at your seat or at this altar, embrace Him as Savior and Lord. Receive Him into your heart and life. But the truth be known, this message delves into our hearts and deals with our Lord, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do I hold my life loosely? Do I place before God a blank sheet signed with my approval before God ever put anything on it? God, whatever you want, you can have. Take my life. Let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Have you yielded your life to Him? I bless God for the day that I yielded my life. I had run. I had fought. I had argued again and again. Finally, all of that came to an end. And I yielded it all to Him. You do the same. You do the same. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love You. Thank You for our Lord Jesus. Thank You for this peak, this look into the life of Jesus to see who You are. And may we, although separated by 2,000 years of history, may we, as we look distant in the past, may we see fresh and anew You standing at the right hand of the Father. And may we bow and yield our lives to You fresh and anew. God, whatever You want, You can have. God save. God, thank you for deliverance. Praise your wonderful name. God, give us hearts of thanksgiving, worship, and praise. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.